Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. <clears throat> this is one of our special editions. And again, the idea of doing some of these special edition episodes, well, one, I constantly have my eye on community news and things that are happening. And of course, we want to schedule showtime such that we can cover these things when they happen. And so that's that's obviously reason number one. But reason number two is oftentimes we wind up in an echo chamber. We do things because it's, and I quote, the way we've always done things. And that's not a good reason to do anything ever. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with these special episodes is try a couple of different formats and make subtle, not drastic, but subtle changes to see if there are ways that we can improve the show. Of course, if you have an idea of how we can improve the show, you're welcome to let us know by going to asknoahshow.com slash better. And there you can let us know what ideas you might have to improve the show. Obviously, all of the resources to contact this show are available to you. The phone line is 1-855-450-6624, as well as our interactive mumble room at mumble.jupiterbroadcasting.org. Hey, mumble room, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, yeah, I just wanted to say hello, and uh, we'll have you guys in there today. Uh, what I'll have you guys do is just uh, ping me in the chat room. We uh, Speaking of which, and a big announcement coming at the end of this here episode, but make sure to check out our new interactive chat room. It is hashtag, or well, pound, Ask Noah Show in, on Freenode. And um, we're trying out some different things. We want to incorporate a little bit of automation and try a couple of different things for the show. Didn't want to do that in the Jupiter Broadcasting Room um, because we certainly don't want to interrupt their content. And so we're going to try to do that on Freenode. So make sure to join us again. Big announcement. There's something special coming for you guys that exist in that chat room. So we invite you to join us. But as always, your phone calls go to the front of the line. 1-855-456-6624. This week, Red Hat announced that they are dropping official support for the KDE Plasma desktop. Now, many of you are aware that I have become a Plasma almost fanboy, as it were. I really like the KDE Plasma desktop. I think it's probably one of the best Linux desktops out there, and it's what I am now recommending to anybody that asks. And there's a couple of different reasons for that. The first is I have, I have some serious concerns with some of the technical challenges that the GNOME desktop faces. And I have seen firsthand what some of these performance hits and the interruption to workflow that occurs under some of these GNOME failures. Now, that is not saying that GNOME is a bad desktop. That is not saying that anybody who uses GNOME is not able to get work done or that Red Hat is making a mistake or has made a mistake by continuing to put their weight behind the GNOME desktop. I'm a free market guy. 
So the more com competition that we have in the Linux world, and that is true of distros as it is with desktop environments, the better we are off. If KDE is doing something better than GNOME, I believe it will make both GNOME and KDE better in the long run. So we as Linux users come out ahead no matter which way this thing slides. But I think that KDE has been probably is the superior desktop of those two. And I think everything else doesn't have the user base and momentum behind it to really set itself apart as a, a true competitor in the Linux desktop space except for express purposes. So, for example, I always call Ubuntu Mate, or XFCE would probably fit into this category. I would call both of those utility desktops. If you have a, um, a server or a machine that you don't really touch, you don't really use, but you need some sort of desktop interface, those desktop environments might be a great choice for you. reason I wouldn't use them on a daily basis, frankly, they're just not... They just don't have a lot of flash. They don't have a lot of bang. They don't have a lot of anything to really pull me into it. And in 2018, there are just very cool things that I like to do at the desktop. You know, one of which, just a simple dumb thing, I like to, be able to launch things with the super key. So I want to hit the super key. I want to type the application. I want that application to appear. Now, I understand that there are add-ons and there are tweaks and that, you know, for example, Wimpy does a fantastic job of maintaining the Ubuntu Mate distro and so he's incorporated a lot of these shortcomings but i think when you're looking for standard desktop computing environments i think gnome and kde are light years ahead of everything else so given all of that and all of that being true the question then becomes why is it that red hat dumped kde particularly why break the news or why did this all happen this week so I'm going to break try and break that down a little bit i also want to get into jonathan riddle's comments on the subject Start by saying this, I question, and Jonathan echoes this, I question how much support Red Hat ever had, even going back 15 years, behind the KDE desktop. So Jonathan Riddle writes on his blog, by a strange coincidence, the news broke this morning that RHEL is deprecating KDE. The real surprise here is that RHEL supported KDE at all. Back in the 90s, they were entirely against KDE and putting lots of effort into friendly rivals GNOME. It made some sense since at the time QT was under a non-quite-free license and there was no reason why a company who would want to support another company's lock-in as well as shipping incompatible license. By the time QT became fully free, they were firmly behind GNOME. Meanwhile, Rex and a team of hard-working volunteers packaged it anyway and gained many users. When Red Hat was turned into the all-open Fedora and closed RHEL, Fedora was able to embrace KDE as it should but put the Fedora Next initiative again put KDE software in second place. Meanwhile, Red Rel did use Plasma 4 and hired a number of developers to help us in our new time of need, which was fabulous, but all except one have left some time ago and nobody expected it to continue for long. So I want to stop right there and just address some of this. So um, I agree with his the general gist of his post, but I... I, I there's a little bit of subtle messaging going on here that I don't really I don't really buy into. So for example, it says when Red Hat was turned into the all open Fedora and all closed Rel. Um Rel is still open source. Everything Red Hat makes for the most part is open source. And if it wasn't, you wouldn't have things like CentOS and Scientific Linux. I would also argue that Fedora 
is an entirely independent project from Red Hat. Do the people that develop Red Hat collect a paycheck? Or, uh, excuse me, do the people that develop Fedora collect a paycheck from Red Hat? Yes. Do they deserve that money and are they hardworking? Yes. Does the work that happens in Fedora paid for by Red Hat support and improve the product that Red Hat sells to its customers? Absolutely. Does that mean that Fedora is the open source version of Red Hat? No, that's an entire, I think that's entirely mischaracterizing the business model that Red Hat is. So Jonathan goes on to explain how this news isn't really surprising, and I'm inclined to agree with him. He also says that the news may or may not be poor timing for Red Hat, as it's unclear if they wanted some distraction from the IBM news or if that's just the register playing around. I wholeheartedly and completely agree with that point and his and his view on that. I, I, I also have had trouble really coming to terms or really understanding if Red Hat as a whole is thinks this is a good idea and and is really excited about this news or if there are a lot of reservations because if you talk to a lot of the rank and file at Red Hat um, a lot of them are pretty frustrated and a lot of them are very disheartened and I think the the real term that comes to mind is scared and if there is anybody out there that happens to listen to this episode and hasn't heard the episode where we explicitly dive into that IBM Red Hat situation please go back and take a listen to that I think you'll find it uplifting, I think you'll find it positive, and I think you'll find it encouraging. So I, I, I'd invite you to check that out. Jonathan goes on, he finishes up by saying, it's a pity that RHEL users won't be there to enjoy KDE by default. We now ship on high, high-end devices such as the KDE Slimbook down to the low-value spec device of the Pinebook. Our software leads in many fields such as video editors, Caden Live, painting apps Krita, or educational suites, Gcompras. Our range of products is wider than ever before in our textbook of wiki to learn, allowing new ways to learn. And we ship our own software through the KDE Windows Flatpak builds and KDE Neons with Debs, Snaps, and Docker images. Again, he says, it's a pity that RHEL users won't be there to enjoy by default, but then again, they never really were. KDE is a collaborative, open privacy aware with a vast scope of interesting projects. After 22 years, we continue to push the boundaries of possible and fun. And while all of that is entirely true, I would argue that GNOME uh, is also a collaborative, open, privacy-aware desktop environment with a vast scope of interesting projects. And I think they're also interested in pushing the boundary of what is possible and fun. I just, I, this, I, I don't know, I guess really for me what it comes down to is I just have really struggle with this idea that this has to be a zero-sum game, that one desktop environment has to be the winner and one has to be the loser. I think both desktop environments are good in different ways. For me and for most of the people that I talk to and interface with from what they want from a desktop, i.e., I want a standard desktop experience that is an alternative to macOS or Windows. I think if you're looking for that kind of desktop environment and that kind of computing environment and that kind of experience, I think your choice is KDE. But we look at where Red Hat is as a company. We look at what they're trying to accomplish, what their goals are. And then most importantly, I think you got to look at what they're tying to the community is because, so number one, this is not being deprecated until at least 2024. So we we got some time to figure all of this out. Second of all, they are only doing this on rel. It does not it does not affect any of the community things like Fedora 
But I would assume, though I can't verify 100%, it would also not affect any of the recompiles, such as Scientific Linux. I wouldn't be surprised if you continue to see KDE as an environment for CentOS even, even though that is they are you know absorbed by Red Hat, as it were. I could see the community kind of pushing forward and saying, listen, if you want to use this other desktop environment, go ahead. The real question you have to ask yourself is, why is it anybody would want to use KDE on Red Hat? And the answer, of course, is, well, what if they want a Red Hat as their Linux distro and they want to use it as a desktop computing device? To which my answer would be, Red Hat, as much as I love them and as much as I put them everywhere humanly possible, is quite frankly, a really crappy desktop computing environment. It just is. Furthermore, the community, the support community, everybody around Red Hat looks at you like you have three eyes when you experience trouble doing things on RHEL that you shouldn't be doing on RHEL. And that would apply to Scientific Linux and CentOS as well. I'll give you an example. And this is a couple years back, so this is probably a little more removed because now media is a little bit more common in the workplace and inside of workstation machines than it was probably seven, eight years ago when this occurred. But I remember trying to get VLC to run on CentOS. And it wasn't in the software center. It wasn't in a repo. And so there was. I went and found the RPM and was doing all these things and installing all these things. And I remember going to a forum and I remember posting and saying, hey, how do I get VLC to run on RHEL? And the answer was, don't use RHEL. You should be using, there's a number of other distributions that you could be using up to and including Fedora. Those are the appropriate places to run desktop-like applications. Don't do that on RHEL. Now, it's worth noting, inside of Red Hat, when, they, when you sign up to work at Red Hat, when you get a job, they hand you an IP phone, they hand you a ThinkPad X1 Carbon, and they say, here's your company-issued laptop. It's currently installed with the latest version of RHEL. Have fun or install any other distro you want. Now, most of the people that I have talked to at Red Hat are running Fedora on their laptop. And that makes a lot of sense because Fedora is very well supported on the desktop. And they're, they're, you'll never really enter that realm where somebody you're going to say, I want to do this task, and somebody's going to tell you, no, that's not appropriate to do on, on, on that desktop environment. You should be using some, something else. In fact, many cutting-edge things, such as 3D printing, are supported right out of the box in Fedora. So much so that if you ever go to a Linux trade show, what you'll find is a lot of Fedora people will actually be using Fedora to demonstrate this. So all that to say, the only reason you would use KDE on RHEL is for a desktop environment, and I don't think RHEL is a desktop environment. In fact, do you want to know what the most common desktop environment on Red Hat is? Anybody? 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 Nothing. Most RHEL servers are not running a desktop environment because it's useless overhead. Red Hat servers run for 10 years at a time inside of a data center, and people forget about them. You install them, you set them up, you tell them what you want them to do, and then you leave them alone. I mean, you do updates, but for the most part, you leave them alone. And that's why at AltaSpeed Technologies, we're constantly pushing for Red Hat. We're constantly pushing for CentOS, and it's why I'm such a champion of their company. I like, their, I like, the, I like the push for desktop Linux. I like the push for open source. I like the community tie-ins. And I like the rock-stable reliability of CentOS, and by extension, Red Hat. So then you start looking at, well, why internally are they not concentrating on pushing forward developing KDE? You know, Jonathan Riddle points out in his blog post correctly, I might add, that they've kind of pulled away. Well, you have to understand something. 
Red Hat has been behind GNOME for a very long time. All of their internal developers, the people that they pay, are developing on GNOME, the vast majority of them. And GNOME is the default desktop of both RHEL and Fedora. Even before they cut support for KDE, GNOME was still the default. GNOME is still where they wanted you to be. So doesn't it make sense that we get everybody playing for the same team under the same roof so we're all using the same technology, you know, within reason? Again, they're not going to stop anybody from installing Fedora or KDE with Fedora on their laptops. But to officially, from a company standpoint, support a desktop environment that A, not many people use on RHEL, and B, not many people are using a desktop environment at all, and C, all of your in-house development talent is on a completely separate environment, I think it makes a lot of sense. So again, I take issue with some of the ways that Jonathan Riddle phrased this. I take issue with some of the ways that Jonathan Riddle presented it, but overall, I agree with his sentiment. RHEL is not going to stop, Red Hat, the company, is not going to stop anybody from using KDE. I think they are more than happy for you to to find ways to integrate the KDE desktop into their computing environment. They're just telling you, hey, we're not going to officially support it as a company. And I think that's a good decision. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard, become a part of the program. Later in the hour, Richard Hip is joining us. Richard Hip is the senior architect for SQLite. Now, if you have a computing device, chances are it's running some form of SQLite somewhere. The issue is a couple of, uh, about a week ago, two weeks ago, somewhere in there, Richard ran into a problem. You see, Richard had to come up with a code of conduct. And when Richard came up or chose his code of conduct, the community at large let him know that that was not acceptable. And so they would help him understand that he was making a mistake. And this exploded all over Twitter and became a huge thing. And so I invited Richard to come on the program. I said, listen, I want to go straight to the horse's mouth, as it were. And I want to get the information straight for you. So later on in the hour, Richard's going to join us. And he's going to give us his take on what went down with this code of conduct issue, how he's responded, where SQLite is now, and how the community has responded to his response to their, I don't know, attacks. I don't know what you want to call them. Also in community news. Ike Doherty has surfaced again and wrote an open letter to the Solus community. Now, if what has happened or what we're going to talk about with SQLite is a poor example of community contributions, I think Ike is an excellent example of how to deal with community drama and community, you know, situations. Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Your calls go to the front of the line. Hey, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thanks for taking the time to be here on a special episode. What's on your mind? Hi, Noah. This is Jim from Virginia. Hey, Jim. Um, as you know, um, our friends, the, the, the backup company, Dropbox, aren't real happy with people who are using uh, EcryptFS. Mm -hmm. They're happy if you're using Linux and EXT4, but they want you to dump uh, EcryptFS. And I've been thinking about moving to LUKS, but wondering if there's an easy way to un-EcryptFS the three systems I have that are using it. I understand it's been deprecated in the latest version of Ubuntu, well, in the 1804 version of Ubuntu anyhow, so maybe it's time to move on. 
Hmm. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I guess, uh, man, so you're asking what the easiest way to transition between those encrypted file systems would be? Uh, well, we'll, we'll get rid of the one first and then I'll, I'll do my research on the other, but, um, I'm, I'm in a, in a process where I'm going to be transitioning away from Dropbox within a year, uh, and hopefully running from a NextCloud instance, partially hosted on, um, oh, I just dropped the name, but, uh, the, the server company that. Chris and company have been... Ah, DigitalOcean, probably. There you go. Yeah. And then um, uh, eventually I would also like to just go with a a straight cloud, personal cloud backup, because right now we're using CrashPlan, and sometime around November next year, that's going to quadruple in price for us. Yeah, yeah, they're changing their business model a little bit. Um, let's start with this. Uh, so first things first, how do you move between encrypted file systems? What I would say is if you want to put your data off of the encrypted file system, I would probably just store to an external drive and then reformat and reinstall with the with a clean install of Lux because Lux is going to take over at the hardware level, and then you're going to stack a new file system on top of that. So there's no real easy way to transition there. All right, so you, you can't just uh, unecrypt FS and have no kind of encryption uh, without moving the data off and then moving the data back on? To my knowledge, that is correct. To my knowledge, there is no way okay. to do that because the encryption sits below the file system, if you're thinking of it in like cake as in layers. The second thing I would I would right. just recommend just kind of talking to you and just kind of getting an idea of what you're trying to accomplish and how you're trying to go about doing it. I might suggest you take a look at C-File. Last night we had another special episode and uh, we had um, Brandon and a couple other folks. Actually, I see Brandon's here in the mumble room. Uh, we had a couple folks that were that stopped by and were just talking to us about why they went away from NextCloud as far as syncing just because of the underlying technology does not always support very well larger files and so you may run into some issues now the interesting thing jim about c file is that it's going to support an encryption for data at rest it will support encryption throughout the transit and then in addition to that the encrypted traffic is also it has a jacket of https around it so you've essentially got three layers of protection you know for your data Um, so it's incredibly private and um, you absolutely could run that on DigitalOcean, or we actually use um, Kim Sufi or OVH because you can rent a dedicated instance with up to a terabyte of storage for only 29 bucks a month, somewhere around there. Okay, and it can be hosted locally as well because ultimately my goal is to have a complete data backup local and a complete data backup in the cloud. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's exactly what I do. I have, uh, I've got two C file servers. I've got one, my personal server, that sits at my house and then I've got my company server that sits up in the quote unquote cloud. And what I do, Jim, is you can actually add multiple accounts on different servers to your C file client on your computer and it will work seamlessly. Yeah, that works very well. All right. So it's, it's server based then, or do you have to also have software out? See, I've, I not only haven't drunk the C file Kool-Aid as I, I heard many people had what we're doing last night. I don't even know where to get a packet to mix it up. So, yeah, sure. Uh, so what I'll do is I will, um, I'll include a link. There's, there, if you go to the show notes for last night's episode, that's probably the best place to go. We've got a link to C file, but essentially, yes, it's a server client uh, relationship. And so essentially you would install the C file server, which is essentially a single command. Uh, you install the C file server package. You go 
put the IP address in your web browser and it will guide you through a setup. How many accounts do you want to create? Where do you want to store the files? All those kinds of things. Once that is set up, then you go back to your, you install the C file client on any computer you want to sync your data to and you sign in to your C file server, giving it the IP address of the server you've just created and uh, you establish a relationship and tell it locally, here's where I want you to sync the files of the account which I created on the server. And it will just start working and continue to work. Just so I'm clear, this is sort of a replacement for a Dropbox, not necessarily a replacement for a total backup solution. Correct. It is It is essentially, okay. it is exactly what it is. It is a open source uh, duplicate of Dropbox, essentially. Okay. And will it run, do you know, on an instance under FreeNAS? Yes. In fact, I believe they have a plugin. Okay. Well, that would make it easy. All right, time for another question? Or yeah, yeah absolutely. Caller in the queue? No, 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 you're, you're, you're right, fine. This is, uh, since it's not any longer uh, blasphemous to mention the, uh, the M word and the W word, um, we, over the years, have taken, oh, probably close to 36 laptops down on mission trips that I've been to, primarily to Guatemala, but a few other countries we've, we've dropped them off in as well. Uh, been putting Linux on them for the most part. I would guess of the ones we've taken down, maybe maybe a third are running illegal versions of Windows now, um, and that's on their heads. That's that's all right. Sure. But there are there's one church that has a ministry there to local high school students, and they've asked us for computers with Windows, and uh, and so we work with a local community college here, they make laptops and computers available to their students at very reduced rates, they're recycled ones. And for nonprofit corporations like we are, they'll also sell them at a very reduced price with Windows 10 uh, as part of the uh, refurbishing program. Now, do you know if there is a version of Windows 10 that is bilingual, that is English and Spanish? I believe there is. In fact, um, uh, let me let me just look here for you real quick. But I, I'm pretty sure when you go to download the Windows 10 ISO, as you can do from Microsoft site, I'm pretty sure one of the drop down uh, things is um, the U.S. version or the. Uh, oh, actually, no, I am wrong. Um, that is something. Unfortunately, I guess you'd have to ask Microsoft about. It's not, and, and I want to be clear about this uh, to you, Jim, and to anybody else that's listening. There's no such thing as a question that's you know that's frowned upon or 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 you know anything oh, like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'd be willing to help anybody. Um, often, I mean, I, I'll be I'll level with you uh, and anybody else. I'm probably not the guy to ask about Windows stuff, not because you're you're not welcome to ask, but just because I'm not knowledgeable about it. It's like going to a car mechanic and asking well. him to fix your refrigerator, but. <laughs> but uh, I'm in I'm in the same boat. In fact, I've I've now sort of graduated to the point where I can more or less happily say, you know, I'm really sorry, but I have no idea how to help you with Windows 10. Yeah. Uh, this is the the most basic question because uh, I just don't use it. I haven't used it since uh, the one before Windows 7 Vista, I guess it was. That's when we transitioned over to. Uh, Ubuntu, and uh, we've been very happy ever since, either using that or Mint, or now we're on Mate. So uh, it's actually gotten me out of a lot of tech support questions. But if that's what they really want and need for the students, that's what we'd like to provide them with. Is just I was hoping that uh, maybe one of your listeners or somebody who listens to the podcast later will say, oh, yeah, I know a Microsoft program where refurbishers can get a, a 
bilingual mm-hmm. uh, copy of that. Yeah, so. you, hit the, you hit the nail on the head because uh, Charlie in the chat room points out that you just simply need the home version, or the pro version, not the home version. And uh, I thank you very much, Jim, for the call. The, the only thing I'll say in response to some of that, like I say, I, I'm just, it's not that I'm unwilling to help. It's just that I just, uh, oftentimes I'm just not the guy that has the answer to those kinds of things. The only, the only other thing to add in there, though, is as it relates to Windows stuff, I, I tend to get frustrated with Windows. I really do. And uh, just a, a week ago or a couple weeks ago, we were working with a large client. And the thing that I think sometimes escapes the listeners of this show and other people is that, obviously, we have to know Windows well enough to, to work in their environment before we can convince them to move over to Linux, right? So it starts there. So I have, we have people on, on our team that are very good with Windows. I know more about Windows than the people at Microsoft who make it. Um, but I just make those people do, do those things. I just I just don't do it myself. So I thank you for the call, Jim. Thank you so much. Again, one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Jim, will have a link for you to the Windows Pro uh, edition in the show notes for you. Again, uh, like I say, open phones, one 850 noah 855-450-6624. I was going to go into the Ike Doherty um, situation. I, I don't have time to get to it. Unfortunately, my guest is standing by, but suffice to say, I wish him all of the best. It's nothing. Uh, there's nothing in the world like a, like having a kid to make you grow up and really realize what's important. And I'm happy to see that he was able to step away from this essentially unharmed. We wish him all the best. Now, SQLite is a relational database system. In contrast to many database systems, SQLite is not a server client engine. Rather, it's embedded to the program itself. Now, if you use a modern piece of technology, then you're likely a user of SQLite. A few weeks ago, you might recall that we broke the news right here on the Ask Noah show that SQLite was struggling with a code of conduct issue. SQLite shows the rule of St. Benedict which has been met with quite a bit of resistance and caused a bit of drama in the Twittersphere, as it were. Now, I believe a direction this show needs to go is to approach these people directly and give them the airtime, ask them the hard questions, but let us together decide for ourselves what we make of these kinds of situations. The man who is responsible for SQLite, he's an re- absolutely fantastic human being, one of the most humble people I've ever met, Richard Hipp is his name, architect and primary architect of SQLite, and now a guest this hour of the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Richard, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Thank you, Noah. It's good to be here. We're happy to have you, and I, I really appreciate it taking the time to, uh, to join us and, and have this conversation. So, Richard, as you're probably no doubt aware, a lot of internet controversy has arisen up around the SQLite code of conduct. Now, this is a conduct that has been in place for some time, but given the recent information and discussion that has come up around the Linux's kernel code of conduct, it's kind of the time that we're talking about code of conduct. So I just wanted to get you on the program and just ask you, what led to your and your team and the SQLite's community decision to adopt this particular code of conduct? Okay, well, this started... At the beginning of the current year, in January or February, we get companies coming to us a lot, and and they'll say, well, we want to purchase a few hours of support or something like that. And we we provide that as a service, and and that's how we raise the funds to continue developing SQLite. In January or February, a couple of companies approached us, and, and they sent us these supplier registration forms to fill out. And you know it has things on it like your bank account information and your tax ID number. And but lately they've got a new slot that's tending to appear on these forms, which is your corporate code of conduct. 
Mm. And I and I saw this, and I thought, we don't have a corporate code of conduct. I need to come up with something. <laughs> so I looked around, and and what I saw was kind of dry and lifeless and uninteresting. And I thought, you know, I want something better than this. So mm. I, I I looked at other alternatives. I considered um, Benjamin Franklin's Thirteen Virtues. I I considered. Briefly considered like the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. So you're uh, thinking outside the box like, on this. Right, right. And I eventually came to um, a part of the rule of St. Benedict called the Instruments of Good Works. It's a list of 72 or 73 bullet points or, or checklist items for how to behave in community. And it seemed to be a good fit. These other historical documents were great lists of virtues that you should strive for, but they didn't seemed to be geared toward helping people to work together in a community, whereas the rule of St. Benedict did. And so I said, well, let's try that. And I, I, I went to the people who work with me, uh, and, and everybody was really enthusiastic about it. They thought it was a great idea. So we popped it up on the website, made no announcement of it. It's not a big deal. It mm-hmm. was on the website so that I could have a URL to fill in the box on the, supri- on the supplier registration forms. So the code of conduct literally became into existence as a purpose to check a box. I mean, quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that was the thing. And it really didn't change anything because, you know, we, we've not had any problems in the community because I kind of police the community pretty closely. And if, if you get on the mailing list for SQLI and you're using harsh language or, you know, words that you might not be used should, should, might not be using in front of your grandmother you might get a very polite email from me thanking you for being a part of the community and participating and asking you to present a more professional appearance you know and if 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 you kind of nip these problems early people really want to blend in they want to conform they want to be part of the group and so we really haven't had any problems so we didn't adopt a code of conduct to address anything that was ongoing, it was just to fill in this blank. And it sat there unnoticed for eight months. And then then on Sunday before, somebody noticed it, tweeted about it, and all kinds of drama erupted. Right, yeah. Do you think, just real quickly, just before we leave this point, do you think that this is a reflection on the SQL light community, the fact that you've not needed a code of conduct, the fact that you guys are able to, ha- and gals, are able to handle all of these problems internally without having to point to some document and saying you have violated subsection whatever, that you guys are just, we're in it for the code, we're in it for the tech, we want to move SQL light forward, and that's our primary concern, and uh, basically just don't be a jerk and we won't have a problem. That served you well since basically the inception up till the time when you needed to check this box. Is that a reflection of the community? Well, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, we've we've had a great community. We haven't had any problems. I say I do sometimes have to send an email to somebody to sure. kind of get them to take it down a notch. But even that's pretty rare. Right. Um, Isn't that indicative of the, the kind of great welcoming and hardworking and focused community that the SQLite is? Just above and beyond the code of conduct stuff, it's just I think it's a real testament to the to the group of people that you work with. The people writing the code are great, and I love every one of them, and we get along great, and we don't have any problems, and that is indeed a blessing. You know, I guess it is possible to have people on your team who are great coders, but also toxic personalities. 
<laughs> sure. And we've, we've managed to avoid that. What was your... So that would be a more difficult management problem. Absolutely. What was your initial reaction when this blew up on Sunday? Because this code of conduct has been in place, like you said, for some time. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like Twitter wants to, to get garner some attention for it, but it's been in place for a while and has not been problematic. Yeah, I didn't really understand it. And my initial reaction was, this is interesting, but we'll just wait for this to blow over. And But it didn't. It intensified, and it began to draw in third parties, innocent third parties that were not didn't have anything to do with this. And so eventually I had to take action to kind of shut it down. Uh, we have a lot of clients. We, we list a few on the website, but that's a small subset of them. Anyway, one of our clients approached us and said, look, this is, this is a bad thing. We're going to have to um, break off association with you and oh, no. like from all of our products. Yeah. And this is a great company, and they produce great products. And but it's also a company that is all in on the social justice scene. You know, they're, sure. they're very much into that. It was interesting. I mean, the people that were on Twitter were kind of screaming at me, and I couldn't really engage them. I couldn't ask them what the problem was and get a an answer that I could understand. But when this company engaged me, we we could talk to each other, and we were able to work through it. And I eventually figured out that it wasn't anything about the code of conduct that they were concerned with, but it was that, in, that we had called the document a code of conduct. It turns out that that term, code of conduct, is like a very important word for the social justice community, and I did not know this. Uh, I thought that a code of conduct was just you know a bunch of rules to help you conduct your life, but but this has a very specific meaning, and and the rule of St. Benedict didn't fulfill that meaning. So on Wednesday, uh, we proposed just changing the name from Code of Conduct to Code of Ethics. And in place of the Code of Conduct, we just dropped in a little page that essentially says that, you know, if the Code of Ethics doesn't work out, we fall back to the, uh, the Mozilla Code of Conduct. Mm-hmm. And... Everybody was really happy with that. That just really calls all of yes, <laughs> and so nothing really changed <laughs> in the sense that the way we manage the project or the way that we we deal with things. It's just that we moved the document from one name over to another. So it's almost it's and, almost as if there was a there was a, a concern that you were appropriating the term code of conduct, I guess, for lack of a better way to phrase that. You know, I'm not sure of these details because one interesting aspect is that, that the people on Twitter who were really upset about this were unable to articulate this point. I kinda had to figure this out on my own. They you know, the the feedback I was getting from Twitter was that, you know, this code of conduct doesn't work because it doesn't have a means of enforcement. It um, does not make people feel welcomed. People from a non-Christian background would be, feel threatened. They feel like a second-class citizen, and these sorts of things. And I tried to address those. I made edits to the preface, because even from the very beginning, I tried to make it clear in the preface to this that we weren't trying to impose a creed or doctrine on any pe- anybody. This was... This is coming out of a Christian tradition, mm-hmm. which is my tradition, but really we're, we're more interested in, in the behavioral aspects of this code, like do not return evil for evil, 
do not be proud. Uh, make peace with your enemies before the sun sets. D- don't be a grumbler. Don't nurse a grudge. Don't be a complainer. These kinds of things, that's what we were trying to do. And you know, early on I thought, well, I'll take this code of conduct and I'll, e- I'll edit out all the God language and just put in the parts that are kind of relevant to a, sure. an online project. And you know, in, re- in retrospect, maybe I should have done that. But at the time I thought, you know what, that's putting me in a position of editing St. Benedict and <laughs> as if I know more than him or as if sure. I'm wiser than him. And I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And so instead I took the approach of quoting the entire thing and then putting in a preface that's saying, you know what, focus on the, the interpersonal parts and, and you can kind of gloss over the rest of it. Let me just ask this, Richard, if I may. Uh, some people have, have speculated, and I guess I'll just come on and ask, was there a certain amount of jest to this code of conduct and, and kind of saying like, because I, I kind of hear that in between the language, or at least I think I am, you know, take it as with a grain of salt and take it as big picture kinds of things, not go line by line, you know, and read word for word and, and uh, that we're enforcing this like a law, just kind of here's the big picture kind of thing. Was that kind of the idea? Right. I mean, it, we're not trying to be legalistic here. We're trying to set the uh, the tone exactly. or the atmosphere or the culture of the group. Exactly. No, that makes perfect sense. Why go with the historical document that undoubtedly probably has um, some baggage or, or, you know, I think anybody in 2018 that's looking at this probably could have guessed in the in the climate that we live in, especially in the technical community, that this was going to have some backlash at some point. Did you look at something like the contributor code of conduct? And if so, why was something like that not chosen? Well, I, I did. I did look around at at, at modern codes of conduct and. You know, they just did not appeal to me. Um, uh, some other people have asked, I make the analogy between pop music and classical music. You know, when, when I look at at uh, uh, the uh, uh, Contributor Covenant or something like that, that seems like, to me, you know, a real a, a pop song that has come up on the charts this week and everybody's listening to, but next year will be forgotten. Whereas I'm looking for Beethoven or Mozart. I want something that's going to be timeless and last for generations. And maybe has and a proven track record of bringing people together and working exactly. together. Exactly. I mean, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the Code of St. Benedict is the oldest code of conduct that people still use that, well, had been around the longest. Now, you know, of course, I'm not not a, a, a huge historian. There may be some that are older, but that's the oldest one that I know of. And it's worked, and it continues to work today. And it will continue to be in use centuries from now, long after Contributor Covenant has been forgotten and, and lost in the dustbin of history. The rule of St. Benedict will still be in use. And, and that seemed important to me. It's a timeless document uh, maybe it doesn't apply exactly to a developer community, but the, but we weren't trying to, as we said before, we weren't trying to be have come up with a legalistic point-by-point set of rules. We wanted to set the tone of the environment, and for that, it seemed like the perfect choice. I'm just going to come out and ask another question. Do you believe that the social justice warrior or the SJW crowd, are they is that, a, is that a bad influence for the rapid advancement of good software? Are they hindrance or are they helping? 
<laughs> um, I think it's a mixed bag there. Um, certainly, there are problems amongst some communities that need to be addressed. You know, we do see some unsavory activity on certain groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, you could argue that um, I was confronted with some, some harsh and unreasonable activity on Twitter this yeah. past week. I mean, one of my, one of my tweets back was um, this week I learned that the people who are interested in being welcoming and safe don't seem very welcoming and safe to novel <laughs> conduct writers. So, uh, yeah, the um, you know we're, we always want we always want to improve the, the dynamics of the community, but I think I think we may have gone too far here. Uh, the 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 tone and the attitude of the of the people on Twitter who were attacking me seemed very counterproductive. They were not working to solve the problem. You know, anybody could come to me and engage and say, "Look, Richard, here's some issues. Can we work through this?" Instead, they were shouting at me and telling me I was a disgusting person and I should seek counseling. And that did not move the conversation forward. That did not help me to solve the problem. Uh, that did not make anyone feel more welcomed or safe or included. It merely raised the temperature and produced a lot of rage. It's interesting. And you I were- think that is a problem. It's interesting you refer to solving the problem, and yet I am still struggling to understand what the problem in the SQL-like community was. And it seems like... Well, I don't think there was a problem in our community. I think it was inference from other communities where... Mm. And I don't know this from personal experience, but I have heard reports and, and seen examples of, of harsh language being traded amongst developers. Sure. Oh, yeah. I don't think anybody denies that that happens. Um, and so, yeah, maybe it is just a, a way of trying to be proactive in, in that kind of situation. So what is the current uh, SQL-like code of conduct or uh, code of ethics? What are you using now today? Well, it, well, the, the page, if you go to the page and read it, um, and it's interesting, we did not write the code of conduct page. This was written by an executive at a company who is all in on the whole social justice thing. And which is important because um, I, I, it's 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 phrased exactly right. And what they said was, um, look, we we've got this code of ethics, and you've got a link over to the other page, and this sort of guides what the what the the the, the spirit of the community is. This is how we interact with each other. And but in the event that problems arise in the future. It goes on to say that you know that we've never had any trouble at SQLite. Everybody's been very welcoming and open and inclusive. Mm-hmm. But if should problems arise in the future, those problems will be resolved in accordance with the Mozilla Code of Conduct. And then we have a link to that. And then you have to make an exception because we've got a different email address because you know Mozilla, the Mozilla Code of Conduct gives you an email address for reporting problems that goes to Mozilla and. They don't really want to hear about problems with SQLite, I imagine. I don't know. I haven't asked. But <laughs> so we get an alter- alternative email address to re- report problems. But other than that, it's just the Mozilla Code of Conduct. And so there's a fallback mechanism, and it's one that people know and are comfortable with. Comfortable with. And that seemed to solve all of the problems because we get to continue conducting the community as we always have, as before there was ever a written Code of Conduct 
at all, and nothing changes. But there is this mechanism in place so that if in the future some unsavory things should happen, there's a mechanism to deal with it. That seems course, if we keep our in, if we keep our end of the bargain, and and if I continue to conduct the community in accordance with the rule of Saint Benedict, then there's really no way for the Mozilla Code of Conduct to ever come into play. Because as far as I can determine, if you're keeping the the rule of Saint Benedict, you cannot violate the Mozilla Code of Conduct. That's a very wise and interesting way to approach that problem. Here's all of the stuff you're concerned about. We'll put it in here as a as a last level net at the bottom of the building, but we're working at such a high level that we can assure you nobody's ever going to fall far enough down off that building that they'll ever hit that net. So if this is what makes you guys happy at the very bottom level, sure, we'll put it in there. But I'm just telling you nobody's ever going to get close to the net that the net will ever be necessary. I really appreciate that, Richard. I think that's a that's a really wise approach. Do you think that this piece um, on the internet will last in the SQL community? That that we have settled this now, and this will remain a, a settled and acceptable issue to to both sides. I certainly hope so. Um, I admit I did not get a lot of code written last week. Yeah. <laughs> Today is the first day I've really written substantial amounts of code, and it's been a welcomed change. Um, of course, I monitor Twitter very closely. Today was the first day where most of the tweets about SQLite were technical questions. <laughs> well, it's good to and definitely get back welcome. that direction. Absolutely, because we're really, that's that's who we are deep down. We're just we're old school tech geeks and, and our concern is to write great code that everybody can use and we want everybody to feel welcomed and included, sure, but all of this drama is not where we want to be. And I guess part of it's to my fault because you know, I'm not a real big community person in the sense that I don't communicate well. Um uh, you know, my, my ideal work environment is lock me in the office and just let me write code and <laughs> maybe push a pizza, maybe push a pizza under the door periodically, but just, you know, leave me alone. <laughs> Take and, you out once a week and walk and you. Think, yeah, yeah, there you go. Something like that. And, you know, I think there's a lot of us around that, that kind of look at things that way. But we have to remember there are other people who are very much about doing this collaboratively and, 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 and being with each other. And that's fine if they, they want to do it that way. And I encourage them. It's just not the way I work. So, um, and so a large part of this probably came about because I wasn't able to communicate that effectively. I think that's, I think that's probably very accurate. And uh, I just want to commend you for, for, your, for your wisdom and your patience working through this problem to acknowledge that there are, um, there are legitimate concerns and views on both sides and to find what I think is a remarkable solution and that I have not seen tried in another community. I think you might be the first community to try this approach, and I'm glad and very happy to see that it's working for you. Richard Hipp is his name, architect and primary author of SQLite, and a guest here on this hour of the Ask Noah Show, sqlite.org on Twitter, at DRichardHipp. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the Ask Noah program. We really appreciate your time and your insight. We'll get you back on the program real soon. 
Thank you so much, Noah. It's good talking to you. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. I just wanted to uh, uh, go over a couple of administrative things that is, that are coming up. So obviously, we want you to join our new chat room. Again, I mentioned it earlier in the program. Hashtag, well, pound ask Noah show. See, you know, we got to come up with that. We got to, we all have to agree on what this thing is. Is it a pound sign? Is it a hashtag? Is it, what is it? You know, hash marks, number sign, ask Noah show on Freenode. We're going to be giving a $100 Amazon gift card away to a random member of the chat room. Pound ask Noah show in Freenode. So you want to make sure that you're in there. We're going to do that on Wednesday at 6 p.m. Well, somewhere between 6 and 7 p.m. In our 100th edition of the Ask Noah Show. And that's going to be live at the Tamarack Tap Room in Woodbury, Minnesota. So make sure to join us. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a lot of fun. Now, coming up for the next week's schedule. I hate to tell you this, but Sunday's episode is <gasps> canceled. Yeah, that's right. So for a couple of reasons. A, it's going to fall on daylight savings time. And so that's going to screw with a bunch of things and a bunch of people's schedules. And people already have trouble converting what time it is. I've, I've literally gotten to the point where I start tweeting a couple of hours before the show. And I don't, I've stopped using a time and I'll just tell them it's two hours from now. So whatever your time zone is, if it's two hours, if you can make it great, if you can't, oh, well. The second reason is we are holding our Stump the Chump episode at Tuesday 3 p.m., and we want to make sure that we're available at our usual time after that. And so essentially what we're going to do is we're going to do two episodes on Tuesday. We're going to do one at 3 p.m., and the second will be at our usual bat time with our usual bat phone number at the usual bat place. Now, following that, we are going to have election coverage at electioncoverage.vote. Of course, you can just continue to listen to the stream at asknoahshow.com. It's the same stuff. We just, you know, we wrapped it in a cool website. So those that don't want to be bothered with the politics don't have to be. But um, our friend Brad Schmidt from the Schmidt Show is going to join us. And we're going to have election coverage. We're going to have senators. We're going to have uh, representatives from the House of Representatives on there. Um, in North Dakota, there is a measure to legalize marijuana in the state. And obviously that has implications nationwide. So we're going to have all of that. We're going to bring it to you live. That's going to be 8 o'clock p.m. on Tuesday. So the, the week schedule goes something like this. Monday, 6 p.m. Central, Patrick McBride joins us from Red Hat. Patrick is the Senior Director of Patents at Red Hat, and he joins us to talk about Microsoft joining the Open Invention Network and what that means for the broader community. Now, Tuesday, 3 p.m. Central, my friends from Destination Linux, they're joining me for a special episode. We reinvite you, the listener, to try to stump us the chumps, or, I mean, uh, the Linux expert brain trusts. Now, that is at 3 p.m. on Tuesday, and then 6 p.m. Tuesday, later that night, join us at a regular scheduled time with Jason Donafield from WireGuard. He's going to join us that night to give us a detailed deep dive into the extremely simple yet fast and modern VPN that utilizes state-of-the-art cryptography. It's called WireGuard. Jason Donafield, again, 6 p.m. on Tuesday, followed by election coverage at 8 p.m. at electioncoverage.vote. Do you guys like that domain? I thought it was pretty cool. Now, also coming up, we're not sure where or when this episode is going to air, probably after our 100th anniversary or 100th episode celebration, whatever you want to call it, is Eric Dubois from Arch Linux, or Arco Linux, rather. Arco Linux is an easy-to-use Arch Linux built with the express purpose of teaching you about Linux. Now, they have sane defaults, it's secure by default, and it's usable out of the box. And if you haven't played with Arco Linux, I don't know what to tell you. You're missing out. That's what I should tell you. So I do know what to tell you. You're missing out. 
it's quickly becoming one of my favorite new learning tools. And as I chat with people that are trying to get into Linux, they say, how do I, how do I learn about Linux? How do I learn the inner workings of Linux? How do I understand what it does all of these things are doing? Obviously, you always have things like the Ubuntu's and the Fedora's that you can just install and use. But what if you want to learn more about what your operating system is actually doing? Arco Linux is your answer. Now, you can do it with regular Arch. You can learn all of those things. You could go use Gentoo and you'd learn a bunch of things. The problem is you're going to stumble all the way you know, down the road because it's going to hurt because you don't have any guidance. Arco Linux gives you that guidance. They have a same set of defaults. Everything is kind of ready to go for you. And then you can branch out and experiment as you as you wish. Eric Dubois will join us. Again, not exactly sure on the air date of that, but here's what we are sure of the air date of. Our 100th edition, our 100th episode. It's super exciting for the Ask Noah show. I really want you guys to come out and hang out. I don't care how far away you are. It is worth the trip. Come to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. We're going to be in Woodbury, Minnesota at the Tamarack Tat Room. Again, Dinner is at, well, the show will be at 6 p.m. I'll probably be there a little bit earlier than that. You guys come anytime you want. We'll have microphones open if you guys want to ask questions or just add your voice to the conversation. We had an absolute amazing time the last time we did something like this. Had a great turnout. Had a lot of fun. We're going to be given a $100 Amazon gift card away if you join Pound Ask Noah Show on Freenode. Also, I'm probably going to end up picking up the food bill. So if you want to eat dinner on me, it's probably free. Now, I reserve the right to change that offer if you know, half of Minneapolis shows up and, uh, you know, the whole state is in there and, and we start branching out that like I reserve the right to have a reasonable thing to, to draw the line, you know, somewhere, but, uh, within reason, I'll pick up the food bill. We'll all hang out. We'll have a good time. I like to meet people. I like to shake their hands. I like to get feedback. One of the most valuable things that I got last time was feedback on how the show is doing, what people would like to see on the show. We're also going to have a commemorative 100th episode poster. We're going to ask you, the listener, to sign that poster, and then that's going to get framed and go up here in the Ask Noah Studios, um, right next to the article from Radio World Magazine, where they actually did a write-up on us earlier this year about our state-of-the-art studio that we put together. And um, compared us to iHeartRadio, or, or, I, I can't remember if it was that or a different article, but somebody compared us to iHeartMedia and Cumulus. And uh, I've kind of taken that as, now I say that. I say, wow, we, I, I put us against iHeartMedia or Cumulus. But we're going to hang that poster up. It'll have your signature. So if you want to cement your listenership in the Ask Noah community, that is the way to do that. Again, with this coming Wednesday, make sure to join us for that. I want to thank everybody who came, Brandon and, and Charlie and Mitfree and all of you guys in the Mumble Room. Thanks for joining me. Uh, I really appreciate having you guys here, especially showing up on a special edition. Anybody that calls, of course, a huge thank you to you guys for uh, for showing up for the episode. We really appreciate it. Did you know the show is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. The Ask Noah Show continues next, uh, let's see here, it will be Monday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telesis for providing our phone systems, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at asknoahshow.com. <laughs>